should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. Uh, I truly am super excited that uh, I've been given the opportunity to sit in my own studio and do radio shows this whole week because (laughs) I've been super busy. Uh, I feel like, you know, the first third of the year just kind of blown by super quick. Um, So I thank you so much for your patience with us. And uh, by the way, all shows are posted at michellemeow.com. Also, the television shows are up to date, and so you can check that out on the website. The most recent one features Ellen Page and Daniel, uh, the folks over at San Francisco Dyke March, as well as Folsom Street Events, uh, and Folsom Street Events, uh, you know, attracts thousands and thousands of people all across the, I would say, country, as well as the world. I think there are people from, you know, Germany, from all kinds of, all parts of the, the world who come and celebrate the leather community. So make sure you check that out by heading to michellemeow.com. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. At this year's Creating Change event, for many of us in the LGBTQI activist space, uh, we have heard of the controversy that um, existed within the space. But also, even if you didn't attend the event or you're not in the activist space, the media had caught attention to an incident that happened while there that had us all talking about uh, you know, the Jewish community, LGBTQI uh, support, as well as the community and also our position our support of Palestine. And so I wanted to have a bigger conversation and kind of understanding what exactly happened and and offer other people's perspective so that we can have a healthy dialogue. Uh, And especially for a lot of us who are not uh, necessarily a part of the Jewish community or the Palestinian community. So our guest today is Jimmy Pash. He's the Western Regional Organizer for Jewish Voice for Peace, and he's here to talk to us about pinkwashing and what exactly happened at Creating Change and why it's important to continue the conversation but actually do something about it. Jimmy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Uh, yeah, we're, I'm very, very happy, you know, that we're talking and we, we've we heard from a few people who were there at Creating Change, but I felt like a lot of people offered their opinions um, as far as a wider bridge is concerned. And just to give people historical content or context, um, a wider bridge was a uh, an organization that was selected to participate in Creating Change. And there were activists who felt that a wider bridge, um, you know, uh, was an organization that historically had uh, uh, involved themselves in, in being supportive of Israel's uh, practice of 
uh, you know, promoting the LGBTQ community and being supportive of the LGBTQ community, but uh, ignoring um, what is happening between Israel and Palestine. And so um, there was controversy that broke out, and, uh, and Jimmy, you wrote about it. Yeah, and I, I wasn't actually at Creating Change, but I wrote about it. I was um, reading about it and connected to folks who were on the ground there and was trying to kind of provide, a, I think, a bigger picture perspective around it um, mm-hmm. and how, it, how I was coming to it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing is that um, the controversy that broke out, there was a protest. There was a protest, people protesting a wider bridge's participation, and, you know, they had signs, and then... Um, uh, the National LGBTQ Task Force then canceled a wider bridge's participation. And now both sides, you know, on one hand, uh, those who were supportive of a wider bridge or who were, uh, you know, had said that um, the protest was anti-Semitic. And then you had uh, the other side of, you know, uh, the protesters who really, really felt that this or this organization was pinkwashing. Let's start by talking about, you know, what exactly is pinkwashing for those of us who don't know. Yeah, I would be love to talk about that. So pinkwashing um, views, I mean, when we're talking about um, Israel in particular, we can define it as uh, branding or marketing kind of tool or narrative that is promoting um, the state of Israel as a gay-friendly place in a way that's using a really simplified um, kind of narrative and understanding of gay rights and is being used in a way that covers up um, the real um, oppression, discrimination, violence that Palestinians are facing from the Israeli state and that Palestinians face, regardless of whether they're, um, they identify as queer or not. Um, and it doesn't necessarily just about Israel. I think pinkwashing is a way of that we can think about um, kind of interrogating the ideas um, of, like, putting a gay-friendly sticker on something as a way to um, get folks to identify with it and support it without examining the different layers and, like, intersecting um, things that are happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my, I guess, a quicker definition. Yeah. 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 I, I totally get that. As far as, like, a wider bridge, the organization that I had ju- just mentioned, um there are many people and, and in the media and in articles like yours, you know, that it pointed out that a wider bridge uh, ignored what was happening in terms of the, uh, you know, Israel-Palestine conflict. And with that being said, that would be, you know, ignoring the atrocities um, of, of, you know, Israel's, uh, you know, of, of colonialism, right? Let, let's just go there. Mm-hmm. Um how do you know? Just yeah. kind of give us the background in terms of why we feel this way about a wider bridge. Because uh, in in kind of what they say, they say that they they do not engage or support uh, you know Israel's horrible practices of oppressing Palestinians. Yeah. Um, so a wider bridge. They are explicitly an Israel advocacy organization. You know, they talk about um, working to build connections between LGBTQ people in North America and Israel um, towards, like, developing a meaningful connection to Israel, you know. So I I think they are building support for the state of Israel. They um, partner frequently with groups like Stand With Us, which is a um, very right-wing, U.S.-based Israel advocacy group. Um, 
and they part of the Israeli state. So there's the notion that, um, I guess it's one side of it, there's like a real history there that I think there um, is an agenda that they're even somewhat explicit about. Um, and aside from that, I want to think more critically about the notion of neutrality or like not talking about something is mm-hmm. meaning that you can just be totally separate from it, you know? So there, if you're existing as an organization that's trying to get people to support Israel and you're not talking about Palestine, and that's, that's actually a problem. That's not neutrality. That's kind of um, a status quo that's supporting the status quo by trying to pretend there's not power dynamics is how I think of it. So I think that what... Um, the protesters were doing was calling attention and saying, hey, actually this group by um, trying to advocate for the state of Israel and in a way that's not um, you know, supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice is actually kind of covering up colonialism and violence and state violence. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, the idea of uh, neutrality is used in a lot of ways that I think are often um, usually hiding something in my mind. So let's apply that to the LGBTQ community and why, why you know, this is so important, why we need more than just uh, having a dialogue, because I, I feel that that was one of the responses from A Wider mm-hmm. Bridge, which was, let's come together and let's talk about this. In in your opinion, um, you know, the LGBTQI community, what where should we stand regarding this conflict? I mean, it, it sounds like, like you had just said, you know, being neutral or, or ignoring it um, is doing nothing. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, like a lot of things, that it's important to, um, sorry, putting out thoughts for a moment, that we, what we saw happen at, the, um, at that protest was different groups that have already been building links, that have been building links through how different systems of oppression and racism are working in the U.S. and around the world. Um, came together. You know, there's been connections already being built between Black Lives Matter and Palestinians protesting for their liberation, fighting for their liberation. So I think um, starting by kind of looking and listening to what's happening and what um, is always kind of thinking of who are the people being most affected by different forms of of violence and different um, structures that are oppressive um, and lifting up those narratives, um, which can be hard to do because in the United States there's a lot of layers of mediation and what we usually hear in the media around Israel. So um, I think, you know, I can't say what is the one thing that the LGBTQI community should do, but I, mm-hmm. I was excited by what was happening there as people lifting up narratives that aren't heard, lifting up stories. You know, this when there's a discussion about dialogue, um, but not again, not analyzing or learning about power and colonialism and racism, I think we can't have a real conversation that's always going to be weighted. So um, it's a big question, but I think that there's already being um, solidarity that's happening. So I think learning about that solidarity, how to lift it up, um, learning what queer Palestinian organizations are doing. Um, There's a few organizations working um, inside Palestine um, who are navigating a lot, and I think we should be lifting up and thinking about their work um, Alcaus and Aswater, two of them. Um, and that's rarely even part of the discussion. You know, often it ends up being this um, a kind of, yeah, a different layer of discussion that doesn't even really include or acknowledge that those people and the organizations exist. So right. I think that's kind of the place to start. 
that's good. That's good. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping and looking for. Just, just kind of something constructive that we can walk away from this rather than focus on Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, people uh, are different within our, our community. We, we know this, which is, you know, a a segue to my next question. Um, Do you think it's healthy? It's necessary to have disruptions like this within our own, our, our, you know, internal spaces. When I say internal, I mean the LGBTQI space. So we know that creating change, it's a space made for LGBTQI activists, uh, mainly or largely. Um, and, and some arguments have been that, you know, it's not effective when we are showing, you know, that we are at odds with each other. I mean, I, I do think it's, it's vital. I mean, I, I think that, you know, disruptive protests have a long history. They have a long history amongst LGBTQI people um, as ways of calling attention to um, realities and issues that are being ignored, you know, when you look at the history of ACT UP. Um, When you think about within our own community, I think there needs to be recognition that there's a lot of communities within that, and there's also a lot of, you know, power structures happening. So I actually think it's really important that um, people in groups that are feeling that are being ignored by sort of the, you know, it's at a point where there are, there is a LGBTQ, mostly gay, frankly, establishment that exists, you know? So I do think that it's necessary to be challenging that. And I think we should in, invite that. I think, um, I think that challenge, you know, it's a, such a spirit of, um, there's so much happening right now in the United States with movements all across the board from migrant justice, Black Lives Matter, um, and to think about the ways in which these disruptive protests are sometimes the only way to get attention, and they do so effectively and bring out voices that are otherwise not being heard, and that often know the most because they've been the most affected by um, the different kind of like structures that are affecting people. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's so key that um, that that continues to happen, and that it becomes, you know, that it be, that it's dynamic and not a static like we are one LGBTQI community when there's um, a lot in there. Right, (laughs) right. I know there's, there is. And that's, uh, I think it's not a secret. Um, It's just that we had been unified in, uh, at at least here in the United States, in fighting for, uh, well, I'll be specific, marriage equality, just because that's the one thing that I can point out in the last, you know, few years that we've come together to fight for. Uh, but you're right. Mm-hmm. Like we're all, it, we come from different backgrounds. We come and that the backgrounds, I mean, what, uh, you know, racially, uh, you know, we come from different class backgrounds and, and all that. I'm going to take a quick break right here, but, but when we come back, okay. I'd love to continue our discussion. So stick around and stay with us. The Michelle Miao show continues right after this break. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. I'm Michelle Miel, your host. Our special guest with us on the phone is Jimmy Pash. He is the Western Regional Director, uh, organizer, I should say, for Jewish Voices, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, Jimmy, I wanted to uh, at least let our listeners know about the work for, of uh, Jewish, Jewish Voice for Peace uh, and the organization. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your organization? Yeah, I would love to. Um... The Jewish Voice for Peace, or you'll hear me call it JVP for short, um, is a national grassroots organization that were inspired by Jewish tradition to work for um, just and lasting peace and really listening and upholding principles of human rights and equality in international law um, for all people of Israel and Palestine. Um, it's a national organization that has over 60 chapters, so there's really like amazing local grassroots organizing happen. Um, there's also, we do a lot of work online. We have a youth wing, a rabbinic council, an artist council. Um, we're really trying to mobilize people on all fronts, um, especially as American Jews, to um, challenge the complicity um, and support of both the U.S. government and a lot of American Jewish institutions in um, enabling or supporting um, human rights abuses against Palestinians that the Israeli state does. So we're a Palestine solidarity organization that's really seeking, trying to analyze and move towards what would be required to have a just peace for all people in Israel-Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, is awesome. It's, you know, a great organization. I think it's necessary. And, uh, I also, you know, really enjoyed reading just kind of your perspective on the creative change piece. Um, because I, like I said, like we offered a, a space for a lot of people to talk about their their positions on the matter. And I, I think that that was like the wrong angle because then you had people who were very firm uh, and weren't really necessarily, uh, you know, opening up to what the heart of the issue is in which we need to come together to address these human rights issues. Right. Mm hmm. Um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about, uh, you know, just, um, also there's this, 
it's pride season that's happening right now. And so a lot of us come out together during the pride celebration. And it's so hard because a lot of the organizers will say that it's for the LGBTQI community. We just got finished talking right before the break how we're all extremely different. And one of the things that's been challenging, uh, especially around, you know, uh, involving organizations and groups um, that, uh, you know, for example, like a wider bridge. I believe that they're they've got a chapter or an office or based out here in San Francisco, aren't they? Um, at least so. I'm not sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 I yeah, yeah, I think so. And and so it's like you know you've got a lot of organizations that say they they are supportive or they are for the LGBTQ community. Um, and we had just finished talking about pink washing. I almost feel like pinkwashing is is kind of a little bit in in a lot of things that we do that's where i'm trying to get at like even our you know pride celebrations yeah. it exists absolutely um i mean that's one way one reason i like talking about pinkwashing i mean i came into the term and talking to context of talking about israel and palestine um but i think it's a way of kind of like critically approaching what narratives are happening that we should all be developing. And I think we can see, um, you know, people have called it other names, but, you know, as like pride events have gotten increasingly like corporate too, that how much does it become a corporation that might be doing um, a lot of harm to some people can like kind of pat itself on the back and put a gay pride sticker on and then it's all okay. And so I think that we do need to be really interrogating this more deeply, and, and you know, pinkwashing is, is one word for it, but it's really about thinking of who, a time frame in terms of whose, like, voices are being heard, and also whose experiences are being erased, you know, um, mm. in our communities. Right, right, and that's the, you know, next thing I wanted to ask you about, which um, are the racial issues that I feel that the community faces. That's been really challenging um, to address just because, uh, it seems like it, it, it's almost like dividing our community in, in various different ways. Um, we talk about, you, you mentioned Black Lives Matter. Um, obviously, when we talk about, uh, you know, Palestine, we sometimes in the community will refer to, you know, brown bodies, brown voices. Um, do you, I mean, just as far as like the work that you do, I, I sometimes feel like there, this, the sensitivity um, level it, it has dropped a little bit in making sure that these voices are front and center uh, because of the issues that black and brown people face. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so just to clarify, you're saying you feel like people are being less sensitive to putting those voices center? Yeah, center. you know, and, and like, for example, at Creating Change, like what 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 happens when we, uh, we uh, don't make it a priority, right, to talk about racial issues? Like, for example, um, you know, having a wider bridge uh, there obviously made some people feel uncomfortable. Um, when we bring up Black Lives Matter, there's even groups within our community, the LGBTQ community, that m- makes them feel uncomfortable in thinking that Black Lives Matter is this social movement that is disruptive. Um, I just am starting to feel like there's this yeah. trend, this conversation uh, that's increasing that when we talk about black and brown bodies, uh, it, it, you know, people get afraid that they're afraid of disruption in our spaces. Um, I just think that that's, that's problematic. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I want to be clear that I'm speaking of this as a white Jewish person. Um, but 
I, I actually thinking I want to like plug another piece that was written about the creating change by um, my coworker Stephanie Fox that was called "In Praise of Discomfort" and was um, looking deeply at some of the words of Dr. King and thinking about how much that word discomfort was coming up when people talked about um, what happened to creating change and especially amongst you know um, she and I are white Jews and kind of speaking to our um, to other white Jews about to really interrogate what that discomfort means and to maybe consider really holding and leaning into that discomfort instead of saying, I don't want anything that makes me uncomfortable. Um, I think we have to develop strong enough, you know, analysis of racism and, and what's happening in the country and the world today that we can differentiate between discomfort you feel because people are bringing up real things they're experiencing, um, differentiating that from like the real harm that people, um, you know, that's inflicted on black and brown bodies, like as you said. Because I'm seeing this way in which um, white Jews are trying to use the, um, saying that things are anti-Semitic in a way to actually deflect interrogating the position that they have in this country as white Jews. So anyway, I'm not trying to get too like theoretical, but just I think that that discomfort you speak of, it's like really important to, mm-hmm. Um, push against, especially for people in positions of, of relative privilege around whatever issue. Thank you. Thank so. you for, for saying that. And that's um, that's kind of where I wanted to go. And so my follow-up question to that is, you know, being a part of a Jewish organization and hearing a lot of Jewish um, LGBTQI people, you know, talk about certain black and brown organizations that speak up uh, against Israel and the position of uh, you know, the conflict with Palestine, um, you know, when they when when there's these certain phrases thrown out like, you know, they're being anti-Semitic. I mean, what is what are your thoughts around that as someone who is Jewish, um, who's white and who, you know, uh, obviously had covered the whole creating creating change debacle? What what are what are those voices missing if it isn't considered anti-Semitic, but they're saying that it is? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot that could be <laughs> to dig in deep there. I, mean, yeah. I think there's a real, there's like a real um, way in which it's become this. People just say it by default because it's it's um, sort of been said so many times that this that criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic, and I think it's really important to separate out a state, a nation state, Israel, from. Jewish people who some are in Israel, some are not, who have different histories, who are not, who some are white and some are not in the U.S. racial context, you know, who, um, it's really important to separate that out. And I think it's doing a lot of damage um, to, I mean, to everyone in certain ways, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not only to Palestinians, but also the Jewish community to say that to be Jewish means to support the state of Israel in a certain way, because usually people define that in a certain limited way. And and I mean, it's, it is why I think it is like Jewish Voice for Peace has been an important home for me. I mean, I had a reaction when I became, I guess, like politicized around Israel-Palestine of being, and I saw um, the Jewish institutional spaces were not places where you couldn't necessarily um, critique Israel. Um, I ended up pushing myself away from my Judaism, and JVP helped me find a home where I could be fully Jewish and like rooted in real Jewish traditions of social justice that we can learn from and build off of. Um, so I don't know, you know, it's like I think that it, it is often used as a cover. I don't think that there's not real anti-Semitism in the world, but I think we need to have a much better analysis around, like, like anti-Semitism is not a 
a state-sponsored form of racism in the United States right now, you know? And I think there needs to be um, better and deeper analysis around that and also people just pushing themselves again with some of that discomfort and um, hopefully Jewish Voice for Peace can provide a home for some of that, you know, that if, yeah. if we welcome people, you know, we we have positions, but it's a, it's a big tent and we want to invite people in based on values of human rights and justice and to think about what that means and instead of just shutting down automatically and saying that um, using a false conflation of a nation state and a people and a religion. Uh, so that's my... Right, great. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us here on the program today and for sharing your thoughts and for sharing your piece. I really feel like... Um, Honestly, I personally feel a lot better about, you know, just kind of uh, now understanding what should be the focus and not necessarily offer uh, voices that separate us. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, thank you for having me. If you'd like to follow Jimmy's work or find out more about uh, uh, the organization that he is with, Jewish Voice for Peace, please head to jewishvoiceforpeace.org. Don't go away. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at facebook.com slash progressive voices. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's spotlight on success and achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way. And I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come. So I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement, presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year.
should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I know it's so refreshing to hear... To hear my voice, I guess, <laughs> that it's not just a recording after being off for a week. Welcome to this amazing July 7th, Tuesday. And I'm so excited because, yes, John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club is here with us today. Hey, Michelle. Nice to be back. Yeah. I like, started to miss you. Really? Yeah. I was like, John, where's John? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he believes me. But anyway, it feels so great to be back here on the Progressive Voices Network. So, John, since our last show that we had before I went on a pride break, crazy pride break. Pride binge. A lot has happened. Uh, in every single field in the world, yes. It's been an incredible week or two. Yeah, celebrations. I feel like we just continue to celebrate upon um, it, it, each and every good news. And that one, the number one major news would have to be, of course, you know, marriage equality is here for all 50 states, the Supreme Court decision and their ruling, um, you know, that finds the uh, state bans on same-sex marriage unconstitutional. Uh, when the decision came out, where were you? What were you doing? And were you as excited and happy as the rest of America was? I believe I was at work. I saw it probably like millions of other people did, just saw the news come through. And of course I was excited. Um, did you get married? No. <laughs> no, mom. <laughs> no, it's been the most annoying question ever yes. uh, in the last two weeks. Everyone has asked me if I'm going to get married, especially because I was wearing like a, it wasn't even actually a real tux. I had just kind of put together this makeshift tux lookalike thing. It was a black bow tie. But that's been the uh, the biggest question so far for me. But no, no, none of us are getting married, but we are excited <laughs> to have the choice if we do one day. Well, and you know, part of the fun beyond just the what, what the Supreme Court decided and President Obama and, and other supporters taking kind of a victory lap, though he, to his credit, did not claim credit for it. Mm -hmm. He just said this is a good thing has been watching the people who opposed it either have to, you know, you saw Bobby Jindal first come out and, you know, he issued this this rule, this order, and then it got beaten down by three courts. Um, you saw Scott Walker, the Wisconsin governor, also a presidential candidate. Um, now the news is out that his two sons both support marriage equality and his wife uh, has been to, uh, I guess, her best friend or cousin or whatever is a lesbian and, and all this. It, it's... It's the continuing fallout in a good way that we really get a, a sense of just how broad this decision was. Right. And our nation has not fallen, I guess, uh, you know, I shouldn't say apart. I mean, in some places it's probably falling apart, but I, I guess I shouldn't say that we're, you know, hey, some of us haven't gone to hell as far as some of the religious leaders have said that if marriage equality was here that we'd all go to hell or even the straight couple, heterosexual couple out in Texas who said they would burn themselves. I think there's, they 
No, I don't think that they, <laughs> I think they're still around. Anyway. I hope they're getting therapy. Anyway. And then Donald Trump still has some hair. <laughs> <laughs> Good for us. Awesome. Very cool. And then the other big news, uh, I mean, there's more, there's a lot more big news, but you know, the women's world cup win, that their, was their, huge. Their third world championship. Yeah. The third world champion. You know, the interesting thing was that I got so many texts that day, people just assuming that, you know, I was glued to my television set and I was just doing things here and there. I'm, you know, uh, definitely a, uh, the women's soccer team fan in, in some way, but you know, I'm not like a soccer enthusiast, but it was just like that at that moment I realized, Hey, this is huge. There's a lot of people tuning in, you know? I think they, they have a, the opportunity to not only change people's opinions about women's soccer, but um, and, and I think they, they are and, and will continue to do so. And we'll obviously talk about that quite a bit today. Yes, we will. So let's get to the show. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. So while the attention is on the Women's World Cup win, that's what we'll focus on during today's show. Our guest today is Gwendolyn Oxenham. She played soccer at Duke and for the Santos FC Pro Team in Brazil. She's the author of Finding the Game, Three Years, 25 Countries, and the Search for Pickup Soccer, and also recently wrote an article titled Millions Play, 180 Get Paid, why women's soccer can't get a leg up. Gwendolyn, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I loved the article. It was just like, yes, of course. While all the focus right now is on women's soccer and this big win, there's this white elephant in the room that uh, has been going on for quite some time, and your article focuses on just that, the uh, the pay inequality or, I guess, the disparity or difference between, you know, women, women's soccer or pro soccer and men's pro soccer. Uh, I think after reading your article, people in general know that women make a lot less than men do, but in the pro soccer world, it's pretty shocking. In your article, I think you mentioned somewhere around $10,000 average is what uh, women get in pro soccer. Is that true? Yeah. And, I mean, I, people, you know, assume that, that women's salaries are probably um, pretty low in, per, in pro soccer. But then um, if you were to actually guess how much they make, I don't think anyone would guess that $6,800 is the starting salary for the women's pro league. And, um, I mean, that's just that's less than minimum wage. And so these women um, are, are, are playing um, – simply because they love it, but when, when you can't make a living, so many really talented women are, are getting out of the game, and um, I mean, that's, that's pretty depressing when we're in an era where uh, male stars are making $20 million. Uh, so, how does the payment come out? I mean, is this all from sponsorship money or ticket sales or whatever, and, and is, is that revenue there to cover either, I mean, even the men's, I mean, not all the men's teams are doing particularly well in, in terms of attendance either. Um, well, um, it's starting to change in, in the men's world, but um, anytime you start a new pro league, there, there are major hurdles, and uh, we are in our third reiteration, our third attempt at a women's pro league, and the first two leagues both folded in their third season, um, and this is the third year of the third attempt at a season, and so um, trying to keep costs down uh, is why they, they kept those salary so low. So this league is different in that the national team players that everyone just watched win uh, the World Cup, they all have their salaries paid for by the U.S. Soccer Federation. Okay. So they make pretty substantial salaries. But if you're not on the national team, 
um, then that's when you're making right around $10,000 at $6,800 is the starting salary. Thirty-seven is is the max, uh, but that's usually your mark for international stars. Um, so, but until women um, soccer can generate significant revenue and prove its relevance in the marketplace, um, those salaries will, will be kept so low. And um, I mean, it's kind of a catch-22. You know, well, they're in a situation where they're not making the national conversation. Um, right now, when, when the Women's World Cup is going on, you see them, you, you see the commercials, there's so much attention, um, but now they're going to fade away again, and, and people don't even know a women's pro league exists. Um, I, I teach uh, college kids, and every year I do. My, I harp on women's soccer, and no one even knows that, that there is a league. And if you're not making the national conversation, um, then you're not getting people at your games. And if you're not getting people at your games, then it's hard to prove to um, advertisers that they they should invest. And if you don't get advertising dollars, they're not getting on SportsCenter. And it's just sort of this vicious cycle of, of how, how, how do you change that? Yeah, you mentioned kind of the, the potential fading of interest after the, the World uh, Cup, but that must have helped. I mean, you know, th- like you said, it, it attracts attention and, and really in the best way. I mean, women's soccer at, at the um, World Cup level has just, I mean, it's been world class. You know, I mean, it's, it's a good story where, sorry, the men's U.S. soccer is not. <laughs> well, the men's soccer aside, I mean, 25.4 million viewers watched that final, which is yeah. more than any sporting, sporting event, male or female, um, since the, the college championships of NCAA football. And that's the only event that, that more people tuned in for. I mean, the people really, really paid attention, and um, and that's been awesome. And Fox did a wonderful job where you, you got to see little vignettes on each of the players, and the coverage was top-notch, and um, they will also be televising some NWSL games, which is the Women's Pro League, and I mean, hopefully, like you say, this, this will be a starting point, and we can keep that enthusiasm going in the Women's Pro League. Michelle Miao and John Zipper, we are speaking to Gwendolyn Oxenham, uh, who is an author, has a book out, uh, Finding the Game, Three Years, 25 Countries in the Search for Pickup Soccer. Also played soccer at Duke and for Santos FC, which is a pro team in Brazil. And we're having a discussion about uh, gender pay gaps here in women's soccer and and pro soccer, actually. you know, in the in the article, Gwendolyn, I mean, and you for yourself, I mean, you could speak for yourself in being a former player, but, you know, the, the life of a pro soccer player, uh, for the women's team at least, um, some might think that it's all so glamorous because if, you, if you're paying attention really once every however many, you know, months or, or years in watching it when it, it's, it's global like this, you might not think about, you know, how hard these women work, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it, it's just it, I think people would be shocked to see the lifestyle of, of what it what it's like. Where um, mo- many of the players live with host families. Most players have a second job, either coaching. Um, I, one player works at Auntie Anne's Pretzels when she's not playing. Uh, there's, there's it's 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 very very different from your sort of stereotypical idea of what a professional athlete looks like. And I mean, it is it's a ton of it's a ton of work, and um, you know all of the sort of sacrifices are there where many of um, the players live thousands of miles away from their partners um, so that they can play this game. Um, but, uh, but 
that and those are sacrifices that all pro athletes make. But um, when you're when you're playing for ten thousand um, dollars, not a lot of the sort of glamour, the benefits, the upsides of pro soccer um, is there. And I mean, and one one just sad part is that many players are retiring at twenty two, and these are players who played on youth national teams and who dreamt of playing on the national team. But um, you just can't stay financially afloat when you're making uh, that that tiny of a paycheck, um, so, so women are getting out of the game um, and not able to continue to pursue uh, their dreams. Are uh, women's soccer teams in other countries faring better? Uh, no. Really? Uh, well, that's not true. Um, in Europe, uh, there are some established women's pro leagues like Germany and Sweden. Um, oh, sorry, that was my son crying in the background. I thought was at the park with my brother. Um, the uh, Germany and Sweden they have established leagues where uh, the they make decent salaries. They are supported by the national federations that pay for both the men and women's leagues. Um, but then, uh, in a place like Brazil, the soccer mecca of the world, um, which is where I played, uh, you know, we lived six girls to a room and ate hot dog buns for breakfast and rice and beans for lunch and dinner, and we hitchhiked to practice and uh, shared a field with a horse and was never allowed to play on the men's field. Um, there, uh, it's, it, there's a long way to go, and um, I think that what Santos, the team I played for, is also the most famous club in the world. That's where Pelé played, that's where Neymar uh, played, uh, and at Santos, um, the, they ended up cutting the entire women's team in order to pay for just Neymar's salary. And uh, once, when that happened, Erica, one of the women's players, um, was interviewed, and you know she's crying, and she just says, "We just want to play. That's it." I mean, no, they're not. The women aren't trying to make ten million dollars. All they're looking to make is enough to continue to play the game they've played their whole lives. That's so heartbreaking to hear. Gwendolyn, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd love to discuss the uh, disparity. It's not just as far as pay goes, but also women are actually treated differently than men are when it comes to pro soccer. So stay with us. Sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this, and John Zipper will also be back. (laughs) Don't go away. for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
so where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us today. On the phone with us is Gwendolyn Oxenham. She played soccer at Duke and for Santos FC, a professional team in Brazil. She's also the author of Finding the Game, Three Years, 25 Countries, and the Search for Pickup Soccer. We're talking about her recent article, Millions Play, 100 and 180 get paid why women's soccer can't get a leg up. And so, Gwendolyn, uh, before the break, we talked a lot about the uh, pay gap and this very shocking difference. Women who average about six to $10,000 a year in pro soccer, whereas the men, well, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know, men can make a whole lot more. But, you know, it, the uh, disparity just it isn't about the the pay. I believe that women actually um, are treated differently, even the, the game in itself. Like I read an article where the women, you know, are, are, they play on artificial turf versus real natural grass, and that's a little bit tougher. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, any soccer player will tell you that they want to play on grass. They would never have ever hosted a men's World Cup on artificial turf. Um, but because it is the woman, I guess they thought that, that, that they, uh, they could do, make that happen. Um, uh, but the players were very upset about that, got a lawsuit against FIFA, um, and, and lost, and, and, and they played on turf. And you could see that it did affect the game. You flip more, the balls run fast. It just it changes the game. And when you spent your whole life playing on grass, um, it, it, it's a difference. Um, so that was a bummer. And I mean, that's certainly not the only way women and men are, are treated differently. Um, England actually just tweeted their, the English football association just had a tweet. Uh, I think it was yesterday that said our lionesses go back to being mothers, partners, and daughters today. Um, but they've taken on another title heroes. And you know, that just is a tweet that absolutely never would have happened for the men. Um, and it's just another sign of, of the way, Kind of reminds me back when I was at college in, in Wisconsin and the sports editor at our paper would refer to the women's teams as like the lady badgers and stuff like that. Whereas right. you know, the men's are just the badgers. Um, right. What, what can parents do? I mean, what can they do in terms of exposure to the, of their, you know, the kids to sports, both genders of letting them, you know, get involved in, and, and seeing, you know, soccer, women's soccer as something to, you know, follow and to get involved in. What, what can parents do? Um, I mean, cord sports are awesome. Getting your kid cheering just as much for the Women's World Cup as for the Men's World Cup. Having a Abby Wambach jersey or an Alex Morgan jersey for your son just as you would have a Clint Dempsey jersey. Um, I, I mean, and I just, I think that uh, you, you can't have the, the stuff like, oh, you throw like a girl um, and those kind of um, terms, um, but just you know, encouraging both both uh, kids to to male and female to to go for it and to 
to show just how awesome these female athletes are. Gwendolyn, I don't know if you saw, but Hillary Clinton did tweet um, out after the Women's uh, World Cup, and her tweet was, from the soccer field to the White House, girls can do anything, (laughs) which is an awesome positive tweet. But it brings me to this question. You know, there's leadership here in this country, and uh, there's things like federal laws even that protect uh, against discrimination in the workplace. And my thoughts are, I mean, it's so extreme the way that uh, women are treated in pro soccer. There's got to be something that you know, leaders like Hillary Clinton or some somebody can do, right, to kind of close the gap or to make it a little bit more equal? Um, well, I, th- I certainly think that the efforts have, have picked up in, in recent years, so um, I, I, I sure hope so. Um, the, there are all kinds of programs from science to, to soccer um, that are, are hoping to get um, kids, which is where I think the change really has to start. Um, participating and viewing things differently and just not, not ever um, being, you know, shown a, a, a difference. And, you know, and then you've also got the whole um, sexualizing issue, which comes up so much in women's sports where, you know, the, the hotter they are, the more advertising dollars they get. Um, and um, while, while sure there's David Beckham's of men's soccer, um, it's, it's much more extreme in female soccer where uh, my college roommate uh, who's Icelandic. Uh, she plays for the Icelandic national team and no one came to their games. Uh, and then it's posed in a nude calendar and then they sold out every game. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a little, it's a little bit crazy uh, looking at, at that whole element of, of women's soccer too. Can I, while you bring we're on that subject and you brought it up, I, I wanted to ask this question. I mean, being a, a lesbian here on this show, um, you know, the Abby Wombat kiss after the win, obviously, it was huge. I mean, it's worldwide, but met with such positive uh, response and, and just kind of your experience in playing with women's soccer. And I'm sure that, you know, there's been plenty of women who are not comfortable coming out, um, you know, in, in kind of maybe your peers. What are your thoughts on, you know, kiss like that? And do you think that it may change women's soccer in a way where people can stop perceiving that sexiness is the only way, you know, soccer can be sold? Absolutely. And I think Abby Wambach, Megan Rapino has been huge for that. I mean, when I played in Brazil, um, I was the only straight girl on the team, yet none of my teammates were out at all. Um, and they all told me at the beginning of the summer that they had namorados, which means uh, boyfriends. And then by the end of the summer, they just kind of giggled and said, actually, namorados, <laughs> which means girlfriend. And um, you know, in a place like Brazil, where there is such a machismo culture, um, that's just not an option. They're not allowed uh, to 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 be open with with the way they live their lives, and when they see someone like Megan Rapinoe and Abby Wambach, and who who are able to give a kiss to their girlfriend at the end of a game, um, you know that does make changes, and they just they're in such awe of being able to 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 live openly, and it's so depressing that in so many countries, especially, that's just not an option. And I I think that uh, Abby Wambach and Megan Rapinoe are really opening up options for so many people around the world. Oh, that's so, it's so awesome. I, I guess that was the, the big question I wanted to ask. I mean, obviously for lesbian fans, um, that was amazing. And I think, you know, the people who are texting me were all my lesbian friends. <laughs> so and I know that lesbians are huge, huge fans of, of soccer, but, you know, it's not the only fans of women's soccer. Obviously women's soccer, what, two, what did you say? 25.4 million people around the world tuned into the World Cup. 
Yeah, that's more than the NBA Finals. That's more than hockey. That's more than baseball. That's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. <laughs> All right. What are your hopes, you know, for the future of women's soccer? I don't know if you're playing anymore, but it sounds like you're just writing more, right, about the game and hopefully getting more exposure of women in sports out there into the world. Right. And then I, I, I write a lot about it, and then I have my, my pickup game um, every week. So, so that's how I've, I've kept playing in my life. But I, well, my, my big hope is, you know, there are 30 million girls who play around the world now, and so we've really seen a step up in involvement. Um, and now I, I just like to see a, a pro league where uh, women can, can make a living playing this thing that they've pursued their entire lives. Um, so finding a way to have the World Cup interest translate into into the pro league would just be awesome to me because then you have little girls able to watch uh, their heroes in their city regularly and, um, and and then I think that helps you know realize what's possible and uh, in in whatever field someone's choosing to pursue. I agree. I think part of the reason so many people will watch a World Cup is because there's the patriotism factor tied in with the excitement of the game. And the same reason people get so attached to their local teams of whatever it is they're following. It's like those are the those become their heroes. They're you know, they're rooting for them even through bad times. Um okay. do you want to play again? If the offer <laughs> Um, gosh, uh, I, you know, that when I graduated from college, the U.S. Pro League was folded, had folded. So I, uh, decided to pursue a different dream. And I, um, you know, there, there are definitely pangs of good God I miss playing, but, um, I have also really enjoyed being able to, uh, go out beyond the sort of soccer safety net and see if this, the, the things you learned in sport, like they say, it's supposed to happen, if that can translate into a different arena. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, playing against my 50-year-old Persian guys every week and, uh, and working on my weird book about fortune tellers in New Orleans. So um, I, 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 don't, I don't think I, I would go back to playing now, but um, that's because it's been 10 years since I've played at a competitive level. Okay. Well, for folks who got really excited about the U.S. women's team uh, for the World Cup, when will we see them next? When, when I assume at the Olympics. When when will that be? Do you know? Often? Yeah, and then next year at the Olympics. That's that's the next big um, big worldwide event. But there's also an NWSL Pro League, and uh, it, that they're looking to your your local city options and see if there's a Pro League that you can go support because they're awesome. And uh, the the that league, the level, it's not some sort of big drop-off. I mean, this is international stars playing in front of empty stadiums, unless you live in Portland, and then Port- Portland, like, always is super cool, and they get 15,000 uh, people at each of their women's games. So, what does uh, that happen? Is that yeah. just because Portland is Portland, or... Yeah, that, 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 that's different? part of it. Um, Portland has always had an incredible soccer history. Um, mm-hmm. The colleges sell out their... their games too but uh they the thorns it's the only it's one of two teams and then the bsl where uh they're partnered with our men's team and they're not treated like a side project they're the portland administrators are just as much behind the women as the men and, and you see the results in the audience i mean they're rabid rabid fans uh for the women's team well, go ahead john i was Sorry. just gonna say well I, I hope the fact that there's only a year between the the two big u.s women's team uh uh, you know that there won't be that much of a drop off. That people will dive into some of their local teams and, and get to see the excitement continuing. In other words, that 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 kind of rolls out to further uh, publicity uh, and excitement. 
Yeah, I hope so. We we all hope so. (laughs) Gwendolyn, thank you so much for joining us here on the program and for opening up to us about, you know, the life of uh, uh, the women's pro soccer team and and just all the information you've given us. Hopefully this will educate everyone out there. And if you tuned into the World Cup, make sure you also support the women's team in general here in the States. Gwendolyn Oxenham played soccer for Duke and also for Santos FC. She's the author of Finding the Game, Three Years, 25 Countries in the Search for Pickup Soccer. So if you get a chance pick up her book uh, or follow her on Twitter. Gwendolyn, thanks so much again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network.